hopefully too, uh, has uh, lived here again in, in the Vancouver area for, for 18 years. He's married to Sakiko, and he's got a son named Joey. How old is Joey? Six years old. Wow, he's just in grade one. And uh, Ken has uh, led a, a church that has grown in the downtown Vancouver. They have uh, many different sites that are developing there. One that's starting in a couple weeks' time in uh, Vancouver in the east side. Uh, he's uh, been awarded the Diamond Jubilee, um, what do you call it, Queen's uh, Commendation uh, for his service in the community. He's a representative on the World Vision Board. In fact, uh, his book, all the profits of his book, go to World Vision. I think that's cool. By the way, he's uh, got copies of his book here, and they're about half price. They're 10 bucks, and uh, many of you have these already. I'd suggest this might make a good Christmas present or a gift to a friend. Uh, and if you want, you can ask him to sign it. I, I'm sure he won't say no. Um, if he writes the same thing in yours as he does in mine, uh, it would be kind of weird. Thank you for your faithful pastoral ministry. That would be kind of weird in yours, but... Um, whatever. If he's got a sort of a standard thing he writes, that's good. But let's, uh, let's pause and, and pray this morning. Um, I encourage you to, to just be open to what God might be saying to you today and how we're to live. God, we thank you this morning for your presence here in our midst. You're truly God in our everything, and we want to learn what that means in uh, more concrete ways and more real ways in our experience. So we thank you for bringing Ken here today. Thank you for his life and family and ministry in Vancouver. Uh, God, thank you for the fruitfulness you've given him and his, his experience. And Lord, this morning as he shares, would you again give us open hearts and open ears to hear what you might be saying to us, God. We invite you to, to speak to each one through your spirit, through your word, we pray. Bless us this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's, uh, let's give Ken a, a warm hillside welcome, shall we? Thanks, Thanks to be here. Okay. I was really blessed by your robust, energetic worship this morning. Uh, when I'm getting ready to participate in a service at 10th Church, I'll often be praying for churches in the city and in the region, and when I think about Coquitlam, Hillside is usually the first church that comes to mind, and so for years I've prayed for you, and it's a real joy to connect with you. Uh, As Derwin mentioned, uh, when the book was first coming out, I got a few release copies and happened to uh, run into him and Angel at Rivendell, so I gave him an, an advanced copy. And Derwin looked at me and said, look, um, if it's any good, I'll, I'll introduce it to my friends at the ministerial. And if it's not, I'll just be hush-hush about it. <laughs> so I thought, that makes utter sense. You know, it's no wonder you're a great leader and that uh, <laughs> pastors in the region trust you. So, <laughs> uh, And uh, it's good to, it was good to meet Angel as well. She's a cousin of a couple of people who've been part of Tent, uh, Petrina and Rowena. So... Um, It's great to reconnect with you. Uh, As Derwin mentioned, when I was in my 20s, I worked for the Sony Corporation in Tokyo, Japan, and I was what they described as a 7-Eleven man. I don't know if you've heard that expression before, but if you haven't, maybe you can guess what that refers to. Any any guesses? Yeah, that's a pretty popular response. (laughs) Seven days a week. 11 hours a day. Any others? 
Yeah, so the workday goes from 7 to 11, including commute time. I would leave the apartment at 7 in the morning and would get home uh, at a little after 11 p.m. and sometimes even later if I was out socializing at a bar or at an izakai, which is a kind of socially obligatory thing to do if you're a salary man in Japan. And so things were pretty crazy back then. And then, as Darwin mentioned, I became a pastor in Vancouver, and I thought, finally things are going to settle down for me. (laughs) I was really naive in my assumption, because I found myself keeping pretty much just as busy. Uh, There was always some kind of deadline I was facing, a message to prepare, someone in crisis. And I felt like I was constantly treading water, just barely keeping my head above the waterline. And I was making so many visits to the midnight drive-by window at Wendy's on Canby Street that the person behind the window came to recognize me by face initially and then by name. I suppose I had a kind of rhythm in those days, but my rhythm, ironically, was undermining the very relationship with the Christ that I was seeking to serve. And right around that time, my mentor, Leighton Ford, who is a Christian leader originally from Ontario, the brother-in-law of Billy Graham, that may be a name you've heard of, uh, called me up and invited me to join him on a pilgrimage to the holy places of Ireland. I'd never been to Ireland. I'd never done anything like this. Are any of you from Ireland by chance in terms of your family roots? Okay, so a a few of you. Derwin, you too? Great. Um, more of you are sitting on this side, I notice. I don't know if there's a sign, but I'm not from Ireland originally, uh, as you may be able to tell, depending on you know, the acuity of your, your vision. Um, but I was intrigued by the invitation, and so I, I went and actually ended up going with uh, Sue's husband. Sue is my amazing uh, assistant at 10th, uh, Sam. And uh, we're actually on our way to see our mentor now, Leighton Ford, not in Ireland, but in North Carolina. Um, and and so, so we go to Ireland, and we end up visiting the ancient monasteries there. And from the monks, we learn about this way of life that they describe as a rule of life. I know that Derwin's been talking about this. That enabled them to experience God as alive and real, not just during their times of formal prayer and worship, but as they were working out in the fields, as they were studying in the library, as they were preparing meals in the kitchen. And I was hungry for a relationship with God that was that alive and that real. I wanted to know God in my everything. And so when I returned to Vancouver, I began to put into practice some of the simple habits I learned from the monks, and these habits went on to change my life. And so this morning with you, I want to explore Daniel's rhythm, share part of my own, and then invite you to consider a life-giving rhythm for yourself as you continue in this series called God in My Everything. But let's uh, take a moment to pray. Uh, Living God, we we thank you that you are here right now. Uh, What a gift it is to to have you as the honored guest. And we pray that you would breathe upon us this morning. We pray that you would enable us by your mercy to inhale you, uh, to take in your very breath that we might become embodiments of the love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control that we see in your son, Jesus. 
that he might be more fully known here in Coquitlam, the Tri-Cities, and in this region. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Daniel, as many of you would likely know, or some of you may know, uh, as an adolescent, experienced his homeland of Judah being besieged by King Nebuchadnezzar's army. And as a result, his people fell. And Daniel and a number of his talented contemporaries were forced to move to Babylon, and they were enrolled in a kind of leadership training institute as potential leaders in their new land. Now, if you're not a full-time student here this morning, I want you to imagine that you are a student once again at whatever school feels most natural to you, whether it's SFU, which is not too far away, or UBC, or Trinity Western, BCIT. Hopefully that's not too far from your mind. I have a regular nightmare that I am a student again. (laughs) And I'm facing a final exam in math or French that I'm totally unprepared for. So hopefully it's not too far from your consciousness. So you're a full-time student again. And this afternoon when you get home, uh, you receive a phone call and you're told that you are being forced to transfer to the University of Tehran, of course, in Iran, and that you have to leave tomorrow. And so you go to YVR tomorrow and you find yourself flying en route to London, England, which is pleasant enough, but you're only there for a few hours. And then you change planes and you find yourself flying to Tehran. When you get to Iran, you're, you're picked up, and you're taken to the university, you're driven around, and then they take you to your small, simple apartment. They actually don't have dorms at the University of Tehran, so you're driven to an apartment. Uh, you start unpacking your bags, and then you hear a knock at the door. You open the door. Someone is standing there from the university, and they say to you, by the way, I don't know if you were told this or not, but this is not a temporary study abroad program sponsored by SFU or your school. You're being permanently relocated here. You can never leave. And you're like, oh, no. And you think for a moment that you'll, you'll never see your family again or your friends You'll be forever cut off from your language and your culture. If you can imagine how you would feel as you're there in your apartment, there in Iran, contemplating spending the rest of your life there, and the anxiety and the fear that you would naturally feel. Then you get a small window into how Daniel must have felt when he was forced to move to Babylon, forever cut off from his family, most of his friends, his language, his culture. In Babylon, Daniel finds himself immersed in a completely pagan way of viewing science, philosophy, history, and religion. In Babylon, Daniel finds himself being tutored in subjects like astrology, sorcery, and magic, all of which are considered idolatrous in his homeland of Judah. And in Babylon, Daniel is even given a new name. Do you recall that name if you've read the book? Belteshazzar, a sign of Babylon's desire to completely reprogram him. And later in his life, 
when Daniel is serving as an official for the government, the king issues a decree making it a capital offense for anyone to pray to any god except the king. It's a crime that is punishable by death at the mouths of ravenously hungry lions. And so there are these powerful forces conspiring to pull Daniel off of God. And how does Daniel fare? Does his relationship with God just wither away? No. As we know, it becomes more alive than ever before. In fact, people look at Daniel and they say, here is a man who is working with so much wisdom and courage that the only explanation for him that we can come up with is that the spirit of the gods must live in him. Now, I don't know what you would consider to be the most meaningful compliment you could receive would be. Uh, Maybe it's that you are brilliant at your work or studies, or that you are a great athlete, a really talented musician or artist, an amazing parent, a loyal friend, or you've got unique style or a great sense of humor. But maybe the greatest compliment you could receive would be for someone to look at you and to say, the only way I can explain her is by saying that the spirit of the living God must live in her. Or the only way I can explain that man is by saying that the divine life must rest in him. So how does Daniel become a person who is... So beautiful and so mysterious that the only explanation for his life is that a living, loving God lives inside him. Well, he doesn't leave it to chance. He has a plan. He lives by a rhythm. In Daniel 6.10, we read that when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, He went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. And three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. So Daniel, despite the threat that by praying he will be thrown to the hungry lions, goes home. And not just once, but three times a day he kneels down And he prays, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. And in a way that I cannot logically explain, when Daniel is on his knees, God is breathing upon Daniel. And Daniel inhales the very breath of God. And so he cannot help but become this embodiment of God's wisdom and courage and love and power in the world. And people who live lives that are so beautiful... And so mysterious that the only explanation for their lives is the presence of a living, loving God inside them. Have some kind of rhythm to receive the breath of God. It might be as simple as setting the chime on their watch to chime on the hour to remind them to momentarily pause and pray and give thanks. It might be as simple as Daniel's rhythm of kneeling three times a day, praying to God. And giving thanks. 
but people who live lives that are so beautiful and so mysterious that the only explanation for their lives is the presence of a living, loving God have some kind of rhythm to receive the breath or the spirit of God. They have what the monks in places like Ireland describe as a rule of life. Now, don't let the word rule scare you because, as you know, if you've been around for Derwin's teaching these last few weeks, the way the monks use the word rule is different from the way that you and I use the word rule. When the monks use the word rule, they are referring to the ancient, original, root meaning of the word rule, which simply means trellis. And if you have been to a vineyard, whether in Langley or in the Okanagan or the Napa Valley of California, you know that a trellis is simply a structure that supports a grapevine, enabling that grapevine to receive more sunlight, to be pruned and simplified and guided in its growth so that it becomes more fruitful. And a rule of life is simply a rhythm of life that acts like a trellis, supporting our relationship with Jesus Christ so that we experience more of his sunlight, so to speak, in our lives, so that our lives can be pruned and simplified, so that we experience more of the love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control of Jesus, more of the fruit of his character in our lives. And I don't know about you, but I desperately need and long for more of the fruit of Jesus in my own life and character. Now, I want to be clear here. The process of fruit being produced in you is God's work. Jesus said in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I remain in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So fruit bearing in your life is God's work. Hopefully that enables us to relax. But mysteriously, the scripture also says in Philippians 2, Paul says in Philippians 2, God is at work within you both to will and to act according to his good pleasure. And so Paul is saying, God is at work within you, changing your desires, making you want to live in a way that honors God and does you good. So just go with it. Just go with it. And one of the ways we can simply go with what God is already doing in our lives is by having this simple trellis or rhythm that supports our most life-giving friendship of all, our friendship with Jesus Christ. And ideally, our trellis and our rhythm um, doesn't feel like a have to, but a get to. I love to sail. And so for me, sailing doesn't feel like I have to, but I get to. Uh, someone dropped by my office unannounced, and uh, he was standing in, in the doorway. Uh, and, and he said, I'm really sorry to barge in on you like this unannounced, but I have something really important that I want to run past you, and it will only take a second. Do you have a minute? I said, sure, go ahead. And he said, I'm in the process 
of organizing a fundraiser, I know you're doing a fundraiser for Africa here, um, a fundraiser for a Christian camp here in British Columbia. And we've been able to secure some world-class wines at a fire sale price, so we're planning to hold an auction to, 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 you know, to raise money for the camp. By the way, it was not a Pentecostal camp. Uh, the Pentecostals are debating whether this kind of thing is legit or not uh, right now, so just uh, I don't want to out them you know, in, inadvertently, and it's not, it's not a Pentecostal camp, as I said. Now I'm distracted, so <laughs> what, what, what was, what was I going to say? And he said, we, we who are organizing the auction feel that it would be great to include in the auction a sailing trip with you. And he looked at me and said, I know you're so busy. I hate to ask you to do this because I know you've got so much going on, but it's for a really good cause. I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I don't care about the fundraiser. When are we going sailing? <laughs> I actually don't own a boat myself, but uh, my friend's family, they own a lovely yacht. And so for me, sailing doesn't feel like I have to, but I get to. I'm out on the water the sun is out. Uh, I feel a fresh breeze blowing across the strait, and I feel energized. I feel, I feel more alive. And so it is with my simple trellis, my simple rhythm of life. I, it doesn't feel like I have to, but a get to, where I'm exposed more to the sunlight of Jesus Christ, more to the fresh wind of the Spirit, and I feel energized as a result. It feels like a gift. So let me share part of my own very simple rhythm with you. My rhythm includes Sabbath. Now, I tend to be a workaholic, and I don't know if it's because I'm Asian, but as you know, you don't have to be Asian to be a workaholic, right? You just have to live in Coquitlam or or somewhere nearby. Um, But for those of us who tend to overwork, Honoring the fourth of the Ten Commandments, and it's a commandment, not a suggestion, uh, to keep the Sabbath holy is really, really important. To have a 24-hour period of time, ideally, where we stop working, unplug, and don't do anything related to work is really important. To have a day to pray and play, to play and pray. Glad that Lincoln is able to play this weekend with Joel. They were... Uh, on our team for a number of years, and they're such amazing people. Um, even better without kids, you were saying, right? For them, right? So hopefully their kids are okay, and I'm sure they are, but that's a different topic. Um, and here's what I'm discovering as, as I practice Sabbath and learn about this gift, that it's better to work from rest rather than desperately needing to rest from work. Hear the difference? It's better to work from a place of rest rather than desperately needing to rest from work. And that's part of the Sabbath gift. That's part of my rhythm. Another part of my rhythm is exercise. Now, when I say that, I know that that can create a kind of response from people. I don't mean to impose my rhythm on anyone else. If God leads you to create a rhythm, a rule of life, as you're discussing, and it's spirit-inspired, it will fit you perfectly. It will not feel burdensome. But I find exercise life-giving. This morning I was up, uh, did a bike ride before coming here. We've got a two-year-old golden retriever named Sasha. She's got tons of energy, so she loves to 
bike with me in the morning. She's not on a bike, but, you know, she's running <laughs> along. Although she, she's pretty athletic, so she might be able to bike, but we're not putting her up for the circus anytime soon. Um, or run with me, or, or I'll go swimming. We live not far from a pool. Feels, it feels like a gift to me. Uh, Dr. James Proshaka is a researcher at the University of Rhode Island, and he points out that the research shows that exercise for many people is experienced as a, quote, keystone habit, meaning that it triggers change in other parts of their life. The data shows that people who regularly exercise tend to make healthier eating choices. Notice you've got some really healthy choices out here with the organic vegetables and fruit. People who regularly exercise also tend to be more focused at work. They also tend to be more patient with people because they tend to feel less stressed out. The research also shows that people who regularly exercise tend to use their credit cards less. The experts don't know why, but I do. It's because after you exercise, you're just too tired to go shopping. (laughs) And so Sabbath is part of my rhythm, so is exercise. And then meditation. Derwin talked about being distracted. I'm, I'm really easily distracted at any given time. I can feel like there are 108 chimpanzees jumping around in my head. Or as one brother from the South put it, it's like there are two monkeys in my brain, but just one banana. <laughs> and so at some point in the morning, I'll find a place to sit, and I'll simply sit down and take some time to, to breathe deeply. Then I'll start to think, how much time has gone by anyway? <laughs> and so I'll set the timer on my watch, maybe to as little as 12 or 15 minutes, hit the button so I'm not thinking about the time, so easily distracted that I might take a word from the Bible like wait from Isaiah 40 as in wait on God and simply repeat it. Wait as in wait on God. Wait. Or maybe something from the Gospel of John like that blind person who simply said, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. The alarm goes off. I stand up. And I typically feel just a little bit more relaxed. And throughout the day, just a bit more focused and a bit more conscious of Jesus. Now, I know that For some of you, meditation sounds like a weird waste of time. But meditation is biblical. The psalmist says, be still and know that I am God. We're called to meditate on God and and on his word in Psalm 1. It's also practical. Dr. Kelly McGonigal is a psychologist who teaches at Stanford, and she points out that if you will meditate for as little as between 10 to 15 minutes a day over two to three weeks, you'll show signs of greater attention and self-control. And Dr. McGonigal points out that if you will meditate for as little as between 10 and 15 minutes a day 
for over two or three months. And then we did an MR scan on your brain. That scan would show that the neural networks in your brain associated with being able to focus and control your impulses have grown. And that the gray matter in your brain associated with feeling anxiety and experiencing depression has actually shrunk. So meditation is something that will rewire your soul as well as your brain. There's a guy named Andrew who, in some ways, is a lot like me. Uh, He uh, was trained as an engineer, and he's very easily distracted. And he began to experiment with meditation. And after a little while, he said to himself, I'm such a loser when it comes to meditation. I'm so bad at this. I try to breathe deeply and focus, and all these other thoughts come invading into my skull. And and so he, he was about to quit, but then he thought to himself, but... On the days I meditated, even if it was for, say, just 10 or 15 minutes, later in the day, when I was standing in line at the cafeteria and I really wanted to order something deep-fried and salty, and he was trying to be careful with his diet, on those days, I tended to make a healthier eating choice. And he thought to himself, and on the days I meditated, even if it wasn't for very long, and later in the day there was something really sarcastic about to fly off the tip of my tongue, on the days I meditated, I was more likely to bite my tongue. And Andrew said, on the days I meditated, and then later in the day when I got distracted at work, which is all the time, on those days for some reason it seemed just a little bit easier to refocus on my work. Now, these things may sound kind of superficial, our eating choices, how we talk to one another, whether we are present at our work or studies or not. But if our hope and prayer is to experience God in our everything, as we've been discussing these last weeks here at Hillside, then these things really do matter. Uh, As Derwin mentioned, um, I've written a book called God in My Everything, how an ancient rhythm helps busy people enjoy God. I know that a number of you are reading this now. And in the book, uh, as you know if you've been reading, there is a a graphic like this, uh, a trellis, and it contains words that represent practices, some of which taken together could comprise a rhythm or rule of life. So for example... um, There's a word Sabbath, and as many of you would know, it corresponds to a chapter in the book on Sabbath. Now, when I mention Sabbath, I know that there are always people who say, are you kidding me? If you only knew my life, there's no way I could take 24 hours off of work. It's just impossible. I don't have the time. I'm way too busy. It's interesting that a study sponsored by National Geographic, which tracked people living to age 100 and beyond and really flourishing, suggested that if you are a woman and you keep a 24-hour Sabbath once a week, you might add up to nine years to your life expectancy. And if you are a man, the National Geographic study suggested, and you keep a 24-hour Sabbath, you might add up to 11 years to your life expectancy. So why can men potentially add more years to their life than women through Sabbath? It's because, I, you know, as, as we all know, I think, that women are naturally more healthy than men. So we men just have more catching up to do. All right? The point is not to live as long as possible, but 
that Sabbath tends to cause us to flourish in every way. I'm sure Derwin has preached, you can't outgive God, thinking about money. But maybe it's true of time for many of us as well. Prayer. Uh, God is with us all the time. All the time. There's never a time when God is not with you. And so if you think about it, every moment of your day could be considered a period of prayer. But many of us are not conscious of God most of the time. A very simple rhythm of prayer can help us become more conscious of God more of the time. We touched on, on meditation, which could be on scripture or some, you know, some, some sacred story that God has given us. So, uh, I write about the life-giving power of a spiritual friend. Uh, can you read this word here? Good, that's good. Um, small font. People have asked me, why is this word in such small font when it's such a big part of our lives? It's a good question. I didn't design the uh, font or the, uh, the actual graphic. <laughs> um, but it's a big part of our lives. And I write uh, in the book about how we can channel our sexual energies in ways that honor God and foster creativity in ourselves and others, in part from my own experience. Family. A number of you, as I can hear wonderfully, are part of families. And so I write about how we can establish habits that cause us to grow together as a family. Um, and, and I'm sure that Derwin and Angel have thought a lot about this, as has Sue Rima. Uh, I write about care for the body. I write about play. Let me ask you. Is there something that you have in your life or you do in your life that makes you really come alive, that gives you unfettered joy? You know, for me, as I've suggested, it's doing something physical outdoors. For you, it might be listening to beautiful music or viewing incredible art or spending time with someone really special or eating your favorite foods, whatever it is that you do that really makes you come alive is a spiritual practice. Okay? It may not seem spiritual in a traditional sense, but if over time it makes you come alive, it's spiritual. Parker Palmer, the Quaker writer, has said, self-care is never a selfish act. It is the stewardship of the only gift you have to offer the world. Money. I talk about a healthy relationship with money seeing your work as your worship, uh, justice and witness, um, bearing witness to Jesus Christ. You know, having a trellis, having a rhythm of life isn't just about our personal flourishing, though if we have an intentional rhythm, we will likely flourish. Having a trellis, having a rhythm of life isn't even just about our flourishing with God, even though that is more likely to happen. Having a trellis, having a rhythm of life is ultimately about our being so exposed to the sunlight of Jesus, the breath of the Spirit, that we cannot help but begin to embody Jesus' justice and beauty and bring that into our homes, our workplaces, our communities, our world, as you love to do here at Hillside. And if you're new to spiritual practices or you're reengaging them, I always say start really simply. Maybe pick one habit that connects you with God. And then maybe in time a second habit that really fills you up. And then maybe in time a third habit that leads you into the lives of others in relationship or in service. If your trellis, if your rhythm of life starts to feel like this, Oh, 
killing me. It's making my life feel so heavy. It's, it's killing me. It's killing me. It's probably, it's certainly a self-created trellis, not a spirit-inspired one. Because if your trellis is spirit-inspired, if your rhythm is spirit-birth, it's not going to feel like this. Oh, it's so heavy. It's going to feel like this. Oh, my life feels supported. It feels lighter and it feels freer, less burdensome. Now, if you're brand new to a practice, it's like sailing. You know, it takes a little bit of practice to learn how to trim the sails, but once you get it, it gives you freedom. So it is with our trellis, our rhythm. If led by the Spirit, it will make our lives feel lighter and freer and less weighted down. Now, if you think about it, as we enter into the busiest time of year, and uh, uh, first time Christmas has been mentioned by Derwin. He's a man who sees the future, you know. Uh, and it's, you know, fall, Christmas. Um, if you think about it, this coming fall, you're going to have a rhythm one way or, or another, either by design or by default. Let me ask you this. Will your rhythm this fall support or sabotage your relationship with Jesus Christ? your most life-giving relationship of all. And if you feel that it would be helpful for you, especially if you're a busy person, to have a rhythm that actually supports rather than sabotages your friendship with Jesus Christ, then this book, uh, God in My Everything, How an Ancient Rhythm Helps Busy People Enjoy God, may be helpful for you. Uh, As Derwin mentioned, all the proceeds are going to World Vision, and their work with vulnerable children. And so we were thrilled when it became a number one bestseller. It's just thrilled. Um, and if you haven't begun reading it, um, it's, it's, it's readable. Um, uh, it's, you know, it won a Book of the Year award, but that doesn't mean it's like, you know, some kind of literary inaccessible book. Someone came up to me this summer, an 83-year-old Chinese woman, kind of wizened, and she, she introduced herself to me. She said, um, I want you to know I bought your book. Someone was selling it at my church, and, and I was walking by the book table, and uh, I was just walking past, and the person stopped me and said, stop, uh, you should buy this book. And, and this 83-year-old Chinese woman said, uh, I'm not going to buy it. I don't read books. And I guess the guy was kind of pushy behind the table and said, you should buy it for a friend of yours then. And so Asian people have difficulty saying no, so she pulled out 10 bucks reluctantly, gave the guy the 10 bucks, bought it, Asian people also hate to waste money. So she decided to read it, you know. So, so as we got a witness in the house, right? So you don't say amen here. You just laugh, <laughs> which is better, which is, you know, it's less religious. Um, and she, so she says, you know, I'm not a reader. I, my English is like grade six level. So I'm using my Chinese dictionary. I'm reading it. And I actually understood it, and I was uplifted by it. She said, you know, I've only read two books in my life. One when I was 20 years old. I was about to be married, and someone said, you need to read a book on marriage. I thought that was a good idea. And I read yours. I was uplifted by it. I said, can I say, can I quote you and say, this is one of the top two books you've ever read? (laughs) I also want to say, too, that if you're here and you'd love to read it, but you simply can't afford it, I'd be glad to buy a copy for you. I have put some of my own money into it. So if you get a gift copy, just ask Sue. And so for accounting purposes, I'd be honored to get a copy for you. Uh, and, and I don't want you to think that kids in Africa will go hungry because you've got a gift copy, okay? Um, 
But, and, and as Derwin mentioned, I'd be glad to sign these for you or your friends if you're thinking about gifts as Christmas comes around. My wife from time to time will look at me and she'll say, Ken, uh, you're the happiest pastor I know. My wife doesn't know many pastors. <laughs> Derwin is a very happy guy. If she met Derwin, I'd be dropping, you know, fast uh, in the rankings. And, you know, but to the extent that I experience joy in my life and peace, it's not because there is an absence of crisis in my life. I, I'm in a line of work in the center of Vancouver, as Derwin mentioned, where I'm faced with crisis after crisis after crisis. And so to the extent that I experience joy and happiness, it's not because there is an absence of crisis. It's partly because I've been graced with an amazing family and some great friends, but it's largely because I have this very simple rhythm, this simple trellis that supports my most life-giving friendship of all, my friendship with Jesus Christ. And my hope and prayer for you here at Hillside is that you would know the joy that comes not from the absence of crisis, because sometimes pain opens us up to the grace of God like nothing else can. My hope and prayer for you here at Hillside is that you would know the joy that comes from a very real and alive friendship with Jesus Christ. My hope and prayer for you here at Hillside is that you would know God is alive and real, not just in your times of formal worship and prayer, but in your work, in your studies, in your family life, in your friendships, in your play, in your rest, that like Daniel and like Esther in the Bible, that you would know God in your everything. Let me offer a blessing to you from the place we began this journey, Ireland. May the road rise up to meet you. And may the wind of the Holy Spirit always be at your back. And may the sunshine of Jesus' face always warm yours. And may Jesus Christ be on your right And may Jesus Christ be on your left. May Jesus Christ be in front of you. And may he be behind you. And may Christ be over you. And may Christ be under you. And through the Holy Spirit, may Jesus Christ actually live within you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.